Good morning. Great to see you here this morning. We are continuing our study through 1 Peter this morning. And what we've been seeing in 1 Peter is that because of Jesus, we have this incredible hope. And because of that hope, we live differently in the course of our lives. And this morning, we're going to be talking about marriage. And I think that it's important that we have a right understanding of marriage because there's this message going around in Christianity that basically, once you get married, your life will be fulfilled. If you find the right person, then marriage is going to be that missing link in in your life that will make you happy. And I remember sort of that myth being dispelled in my life, partly through pre-marriage counseling that my wife and I did with our pastor in a small town in Indiana. His name was Bob. I remember we were meeting with Bob and everything was going well the first four weeks that we met with Bob. And then the crap hit the fan week five. And Bob kind of dropped this bomb on us. He's like, so I remember after five years of marriage, waking up next to my wife, Mary, and saying to myself, I think I made the biggest mistake of my life. I remember thinking, are you supposed to say this? (laughs) Not the message that I've heard about marriage in the past. And Bob was the nicest guy on earth, and Mary was one of the nicest people that I've ever been around. So I'm like, if they're having this issue, this issue is bound to come up in my life. So what I think is true is that as we read the Bible, the message of the Bible is mainly positive about marriage, but the Bible is also incredibly realistic. And so the passage that we're going to look at this morning is a very realistic passage about what marriage can begin to look like in a sinful world and how we as married people or people who may one day be married are to respond to that. So sort of as a big idea we're going to see that marriage exists to reflect the costly love of Jesus. In other words, marriage isn't mainly about your happiness. Marriage is mainly about you walking in obedience to Jesus and reflecting the love that he has shown to us on the cross. So what we're going to look at is first... We're going to look at what the costly love of Jesus looks like and then how wives and husbands in their roles in marriage are to reflect his love. And so first of all, we're going to establish that the love of Jesus was in fact costly love. So we're actually going to rewind and go back over a few verses that sort of set up our text well. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 24 to start. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of 1 Peter is toward the end. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So for our purpose this morning, two things stand out from this passage. There's lots of things that stand out. I I think this passage is like a diamond. It's like whatever way you turn it, the light reflects on it in a different way. So there's lots of things that could be said about this passage. But two things that stand out for our purpose are that Jesus was mistreated. In other words, he was oppressed. And that he simultaneously refused to mistreat others. So, for example, in verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, that's remarkable at the level of Jesus being a victim. For someone to suffer oppression and to not respond with anger and with threatening is amazing. But what's even more amazing is that the person that we're talking about here is the Son of God. In other words, what we believe about Jesus is that God took on human flesh. So the person who was hanging on the cross for us is the same person who created the universe. Which means when Jesus was suffering on the cross, at any moment, he could not only have gotten down off the cross, he could have begun to be the oppressor and to kill everyone who was killing him. So what's remarkable about Jesus is that he did not use his power to crush other people. Instead, on the cross, he withheld his power to love those people. So Jesus, when was suffering, did not threaten anyone with punishment. In fact, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And secondly, what's remarkable about Jesus is that he submitted himself to the governing authorities. So we see there's these accusations being thrown at him. Pilate basically hands him over to this mob and says they can crucify him. There's these Roman soldiers surrounding him. There's this unjust system that is oppressing him. And in the midst of all of this injustice, as Jesus is being reviled, as people are spitting on him and mocking him, and shoving thorns into his head, and eventually even crucifying him, He is, at each step, submitting to the process. 
And the question we begin to ask is, why would he do that? Why did he do that? And the answer that this text gives is that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. In other words, what Jesus was doing is he was taking on the weight of the sin of the world. He was taking responsibility for something that he didn't do. He was taking responsibility for your wrongdoing, for my wrongdoing, for your rebellion against God, and for my rebellion against God. And so Peter says that we are saved by the precious blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is precious because it is the blood of that type of person, and it is precious to us because it is by his blood, by his wounds, that we are healed as he takes the burden off of us and places the burden on himself. Now, whenever I tell that story, I'm always lost with exactly how to illustrate the story. So I'm going to give you sort of just a crude example, something that you can relate to, and I'm hoping that this sort of opens the window for you to help you understand the cross better. You know the phone call that I get bummed getting is when during the week I get a call from somebody and they're like, will you help me move on Saturday? You guys know what I'm talking about? Why is that a bummer phone call? Because our weekends are precious to us. And we don't want to spend our weekends lifting someone else's stuff. It's not my stuff, it's your stuff. You move your stuff. I don't want to move your stuff. My weekend is precious to me. And we have this internal wrestling even about something as simple as moving for somebody even if we love them. Now here's the amazing thing about what Jesus did at the cross. He looks at his entire life and the Bible says he didn't count his life as something that was precious to him. Not just a weekend, his life. And he looked at your sin, not a bunch of boxes, your sin that deserve the death penalty. And he said, I will bear that sin. I will lift that sin. Even though for Jesus to suffer in your place was not strictly speaking just. He was perfect. He didn't deserve to be punished. Now, here's a question. I thought we were talking about marriage. Why are you telling me the story of Jesus? What does that have to do with marriage? And here's what Peter says. It has everything to do with marriage. Because the truth of the matter is, when you get married, 
you will marry someone who is sinful and the only way that you can possibly love someone else who wrongs you is by bearing their burdens. Is by bearing with them. 1 Corinthians 13, famous wedding passage. Love bears all things. Okay, so we're going to go in order of the text that we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to first see that wives are called to costly submission. The form that a wife's love is to take in relationship to her husband is a form of submission. Starting with verse 1, we're going to read through verse 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, if you have your Bible open, something helpful for you to do right now is to circle the word likewise. Or in some of your versions, it says, in the same way. Here's the reason we unpacked verses 21 to 24, 1 Peter 2. Because here's what Peter is saying to wives. In the same way that Jesus has loved you, you are to love your husband. And he makes very clear in the text what he means by that. Even if your husband's a jerk, even if your husband's a low life, even if your husband is not submitted to God, you see that in the text? It says, so that even if some do not obey the word, I think the person Peter has in mind is a wife and a husband who have gone to church together. She's heard the word. She's put herself under the lordship of Jesus. She's following after him. And her husband has turned his back on the word of God. And their home has become a divided place. And in that environment, Peter still tells her, to be subject to her husband. And immediately we think, how ridiculous is that? Who does Peter think he is? Here's who Peter is. He's the apostle who when Jesus told him he was going to the cross, he told him it was a bad idea. And Jesus rebuked Peter and then as Jesus 
was headed directly to the cross, Peter denied him. Jesus restored Peter. Peter was sent out into ministry after Jesus rose from death. And he told Peter, before he was sent out into ministry, that Peter would die. And we know from church history that Peter so submitted his life to Jesus that he was crucified upside down for the sake of Jesus. And ultimately, here's what we know, ladies. These are the words of Peter, but ultimately we know that these are the words of God. The one who is telling you to submit to your husband is the one who submitted to unjust authorities and who bore your sin on the cross. If anyone knows what it's like to submit to a jerk, it's Jesus. Okay, so what does that look like? Why in the world, as a wife, would you do that? And Peter says, to win your husband to Jesus. See, as Christians, we don't ultimately believe that our life is our own. We believe that we have been bought with a price, and therefore our mission is to glorify God in our bodies. Marriage is not about your happiness. Marriage continues to be about the mission of Jesus. Peter says the reason that you would behave so counterculturally is because you care more about your husband's soul than you care about your own life. Isn't that amazing? So crazy, so countercultural, so like Christ. So how do you do that? How do you win your husband to Jesus if he doesn't know him? Peter says it's through your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, if he's not listening to the church leaders, he's not submitting himself to the word of God, he is likely not going to listen to you if you try to convince him to follow Jesus. But he may be won by your conduct, respectful conduct. To submit means to respect the leadership of your husband, to follow his leadership. As long as he's not leading you into sin, you are choosing to honor him, to respect him, to speak well of him, and to serve him. And then he also adds pure conduct. And I think what we'll see in the text is the main thrust of the text is to emphasize sexual purity. It might seem like it's just sort of thrown in there. Why is he talking about sexual purity? Here's what I think is in Peter's mind. In the heart of a woman, every woman, 
is a deep desire to be loved and to be treasured and to be honored. And one of the most devastating things to a woman is to get into a marriage where that is not the case. And so here's going to be the temptation if you are in a marriage where you are not being treasured and honored and cared for and spiritually led and protected the way that God designed it to be, is you are going to begin to be tempted to go elsewhere with your desires to be cared for, protected, and loved. And so here's the first place you're going to go. You're going to try to make yourself look as beautiful as you possibly can to attract the attention of other men. So here's what he says. Don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Now what that is not saying is, if you braided your hair this morning, make sure you cover that up because you're in sin. Or, oh, I got gold jewelry, I should have worn silver, what was I thinking? That's not what it's talking about. And people love to make lists and legalistic rules based on passages like this. But if they would just read their Bible and knew the English language, we wouldn't get into these problems. Because he's saying, don't let the, your, your adorning be external. And then he says, braiding, gold jewelry, or clothing. And no one ever said women should stop wearing clothes. <laughs> right? But that's the logic that you would have to take if you go down that road. What he's saying is, don't let that be your focus. Because your husband's not taking care of you the way that he ought to be. And you're in this position of now trying to win him to Christ or influence him for Christ. Don't go down this road of trying to get attention for how you look. Don't focus on that. Instead, focus on being a godly woman, which he summarizes with these words. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. He's not talking about a personality type here. He's talking about the hidden person of your heart, a heart that trusts in God, a heart that knows him, a heart that hopes in him, a heart that loves him, a heart that is even at ease in difficult circumstances. Here's why this is so important for us to hear as a young church, ladies. This has been a real surprise to me since I've been doing college ministry for over a decade now. I've seen a lot of student leaders with the college ministries that I've been a part of leading come and go. And one thing that's been Surprising to me is the number of ladies who have come to Christ or were already Christians when they came to college, got married young, and in their first few years of marriage, they're the one committing adultery. They're the one who's starting to dress a little bit nicer to attract the guy at work. They're the one leaving their husband. They're the one who's like, my husband's not listening to me enough. My husband's not respecting me enough. My husband's not caring for me the way that I thought he would. He's not the ideal of the Christian man that I heard about, and they don't know what to do, 
And they have this desire to be loved and cherished and honored. And so they run somewhere else to get that need met. I've seen it happen. A dozen times maybe. And I think what Peter is saying is, ladies, don't be surprised if you don't marry Prince Charming. Don't be shocked if the person that you are married to disappoints you in deep and profound and hurtful ways. And here's what he's saying. Even if that happens, love him. Respect him. Do what Jesus did. Okay, you're saying you're calling me to something absolutely radical and absolutely crazy. Where am I going to get the resources to do that? How am I going to pursue that path when that life sounds miserable and sounds so hard and everything in our culture is telling me to run away? Because if you fall out of love, you have the free pass to go chase your true love. That's what our culture says. Here's what the Bible says. First of all, God is with you. See what it says? This gentle, quiet spirit in God's sight is very precious. God is with you. And here's what's true about God. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will care for you in a way that your husband never could. He will understand you. He will be with you. He is the perfect husband that you are longing for. So here's what he's saying. Even though you're in the midst of this difficult marriage relationship, you remember that God is with you and you remember that the best is yet to come. He says the only way that you can survive this type of marriage is by placing your hope in God. In other words, you flip to the end of the Bible, you get to Revelation, and you see that one day you will walk down the aisle in a spotless white dress, and Jesus will be standing at the end of the aisle, and he will wipe away the tears from your face. There will be no crying and no pain and no jerk of a husband anymore. And you will be with Jesus forever. And he is the fulfillment of all of your hopes and your dreams. And so you can let go of this idol, of this perfect husband, and you can respect your husband, the person that you're married to. You can follow his leadership, not because his leadership's perfect or even his leadership's good or great, but because, like Jesus, you are entrusting yourself to God. You're leaving it to him. You believe that he is going to make everything right in the end. 
and then you walk forward, and this is what you do, you don't fear anything that's frightening. Some people think when the Bible says that you are to submit, that you're supposed to be servile, you're supposed to be kind of timid and fearful. That is the furthest thing from the truth. You are to walk with your head held high and you are not to be afraid of the marriage that you're in or what could happen to you, but instead you are supposed to think, I'm a daughter of the king. I got nothing to be afraid of. And that might mean at times you stand up for yourself. You can't treat me that way. You don't talk to me that way. You're not afraid. You're respectful, but you're not afraid. And if your husband begins to cross the line into abuse, you come and you talk to us and we confront him and we call the police. But you are not afraid because God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. God is with you. God has good plans for you. And he is not overlooking the situation that you are in. Thankfully, the text doesn't stop there. You might think the husband's getting off. It's fine. The Bible sort of approves of this guy who's not doing a great job leading his wife, but that is also not true. Husbands are called to costly servant leadership. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, the text starts with this word, likewise, in the same way. Jesus, in a position of power and authority, did not threaten, did not use his authority to stand up for his own rights, used his authority to serve those who were under his leadership, serve them to the point of bearing their sins in his body on the cross. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally means live with your wives according to knowledge. Here's the first thing God calls us to, husbands. To listen to our wives. To know what her desires are. To know what her fears are. To know what her concerns are to know what she likes to do, to know what she likes to wear, to know what she likes to eat, 
to know the significant things about her life and the seemingly insignificant things about her life. To really love someone, you have to listen to them and you have to get to know them. This is the type of atmosphere, gentlemen, that our leadership should produce in our family. An atmosphere of understanding. How quickly do we create an atmosphere of criticism? An atmosphere of demanding our rights, talking about our wants and our desires, and do we stop listening and we start moving toward this idea of being the king of the castle instead of being a servant in our families. God calls us men to live with our wives in an understanding way. Peter gives some reasons for this. We are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This text has been used in a very hurtful way in the past. Here's literally what this means. Women don't have as much testosterone as men. That's all it means. It means that, generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. Here's what it's saying. Men, you're the weak vessel. Your wife is the weaker vessel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Here's what he's saying. You're physically stronger than her. There's nothing impressive about showing her who's boss with your physical size. There's nothing impressive. There's nothing manly about throwing your wife around, abusing her. What a waste of what God has given you. You were made stronger to protect her and to serve her and to lead her and to love her. Not to hurt her and abuse her and demand your rights over her. Literally what he's saying is you are to honor her. In other words, use the strength that God has given you to show your wife how precious she is to you. In the same way that Jesus has used his strength to show us how precious we are to him. Husbands, we are to tell our wives that we love them. What we love about them and how precious they are to us. So I know for many of us it's hard because those type of words take time to come to the surface for us. So you might have to sit down, guys. You might have to get a pen out, get a journal out. You might have to take your commute time to really think about those things and start to be intentional about verbally praising your wife. So a lot of guys, right, they've camped out on this weaker vessel thing. They've obliterated it, acted like women are emotionally superior or inferior or spiritually inferior, which is the furthest thing from the truth. And they've forgotten to read the next part of the verse, which says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. See, what the Bible teaches is that 
men and women are sons and daughters of the king. And that what God has planned for us is to give us everything. We are co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. There is neither male nor female. We are one in Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And one day we will stand before King Jesus and he will reward us equally as men and women. So you're living with your wife and you're understanding this, that although you might be physically stronger, that in no way means that you are superior. You are both headed to the same destination. And this woman that you live with is to be treated with honor because she is not ultimately yours. She is God's. And you treat his daughter with respect. You care for her. You love her. And here's the great thing. Ladies, you're going to love this. Guys, maybe not so much. But it says that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's what's going to happen. If your husband doesn't treat you this way, God's going to say, not talking to you, bro. Okay, here's what happens with my kids sometimes. I know that they're having a disagreement with their mom. They're treating her disrespectfully. And they haven't apologized for it. And they come to me and they say, hey, dad, can you get me a snack? And I'll say, don't talk to me until you make it right with your mom. You don't treat my wife that way. Go apologize to your mom, then come back to me and we'll have a conversation about whether I'm going to give you the snack or not. And then they go and they kind of run, you know, and I hear them, I'm sorry, mom. And they say it in a sort of a disrespectful tone and they come back. I'm like, no, try it again. They go back and finally, when they get to this place where they can say, I am sorry that I have been disrespecting you, mom. Then they can come back. We can have a conversation. We can enter back into relationship together and I can answer their request. Here's what the Bible's saying. This woman that you're married to is his daughter. You disrespect his daughter, it ruins your relationship with him and he will not talk to you until you make that relationship right. Ladies, husbands, here's what's coming for all of us. One day, you will be standing before the king of the universe hand in hand with your spouse as a co-heir of Christ. And he will say to you together, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. That's your destiny. So what that means for today is that you apologize. That you have a tender heart. That you repent. That you come back together as one unit. 
And for those of you who are single, it means that you have an even-headed approach to marriage so that you can have clear insight into the person it is that you're dating. Ask people around you what they think about them. Ask your parents. Ask your leaders. Because that person isn't necessarily who you think they are. All right, guys, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you've put uh, tough texts in the Bible. uh, Because when we dig into them, uh, there's really a lot there for us. Ask that we would be um, submissive, respectful, honoring spouses. This church would be marked by just humility, repentance, courage, kindness, and just love for one another that allows the world to see who Jesus is through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.